Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan. And today we'll be talking about people who are spending their last night on Earth, or so it seems. That's right. What's our story today, Dan? It is In Constant Moon by Larry Niven, which was originally published in the 1971 short story collection, All the Myriad Ways. It's actually one of the very first short story collections in sci-fi that I remember reading out of years ago. It was uh, uh, one of my friends who lived on the block. His older brother had a copy of it, and my older brother had a copy of it. And for some reason, um, I wound up reading. Well, it, there's some there's some weird, cool stuff in there. It made an impact on me. I remember that. Well, if, uh, if Niven is any example of the authors they included in that volume, it was probably a good one to start with because, you know, Niven has been around for quite some time. He's been recognized for pretty much every award the sci-fi community has to offer, including, I believe, like the Grand Master of Science Fiction, which I think he got awarded a few years ago. He's, of course, best known for his Ringworld series, which I have read several times and enjoyed thoroughly. Um, he's also done a lot of writing for TV. He's written scripts for the original Land of the Lost series. He wrote for Star Trek the Animated Series. And he did uh, stories for The Outer Limits, which actually the story we're covering was covered in the, well, not the original, but in the 1995-96 reboot of The Outer Limits. Uh, right. includes actually this story. It was even, I think, was going to be a movie at some point in time and announced as one back in like 2017, but it apparently never got off the ground. It was optioned, I think, all the way back to like 2000 or 2001 by one of the major studios, but it's just one of those concepts that sat in limbo for a long time. Well, didn't you just say you, you actually saw a movie recently on Apple TV that was pretty much the same concept? Oh yeah, so there's the there's the Tom Hanks film from 2021 that's called Finch, which is in in many ways if if you've seen the movie Castaway, this is sort of like a post-apocalyptic Castaway where you know it's it's Tom Hanks, a couple of robots that he's built, and a dog that he that he stumbles across in in the in the post-apocalyptic world, and it follows up after a um, well. I'll, I'll hold off on the on the apocalyptic note. Try ah, not to add a spoiler in there. That's right. It, it it won't be long before we we reveal what it is that's going on in Inconstant Moon here, but but we'll hang on to it for just a moment. So why don't you kick us off with the vast cast of characters that we're going to meet in this story? Yeah, there's a number of people that are just in the background, but there's only two that really bear mentioning in terms of like actual characters. So there's the narrator, whose name is Stan, who is a freelance writer and included in the stuff that he writes about. Is, um, is, a, is a variety of science topics. And then the, there's, a, there's a woman that he has been dating off and on for a year that uh, he, he calls up when the events start to unfold in the story. Her name is Leslie, and she is something of an amateur astronomer. Yep, so the story kicks off with Stan. He's up late watching TV. Specifically, he's watching Johnny Carson, for those of us who remember the Johnny Carson days. He's in his apartment in Los Angeles, California, and the first thing he notices that kicks the story off is the moon, and there is something odd about it. In fact, it has become very, very, very bright. This confuses him a bit, and I guess the first thing he does is he thinks, ah, I'm going to go wake up my girlfriend Leslie and have her look at it. 
So he calls her up and indeed says, go look outside. What, what's up with the moon? And she's, of course, it's, I think it's like around midnight or something like right. that or after midnight. So he, he roasts her out of bed. She kind of stumbles out and goes, yeah, the moon's pretty nice. Like, thanks for calling, dude. Uh, it's, it's beautiful, but I got to go back to work in the morning. So good night. Right. And so in the ensuing moments, he's pacing around, keeps looking out, and the moon is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And it's noticeably brighter in a relatively short span of time. And he spends a lot of time contemplating what could possibly be the reason behind this. And he's thinking about what he knows about the moon and what he knows about light reflected off of it. You know, is the moon bigger? No, that's impossible. Is it brighter? Well, the only reason that it could possibly be brighter is if it's reflecting more light from the sun. How could it be bright enough to read off of when it's only a three-quarter moon? It's not even a full moon. So all of this stuff is just churning through his head, and it finally kind of settles in what the real explanation must be, and it ain't good. Yeah, he basically says something has happened to the sun, and the first thing he thinks of is uh, the sun apparently has exploded or gone nova, and... That's pretty much the end of everything. And he immediately starts thinking, oh, now what are we going to do about this? So what does he do? He calls Leslie back. And she's still awake. You know, she's still looking at the moon. As Bill said, she's an astronomer type. And Stan basically says, you know what? Hey, it's midnight. We're both up. Let's just go out and tie one on and have a good old time. Eat hot fudge sundaes and drink Irish coffees because... He doesn't really say to her that it's the last night on Earth, but he's already in that mindset. Yeah, he's he's drawn the conclusion that, that they aren't going to live much past dawn if they make it that far. And so he's thinking, well, if this is the last thing that we do, we may as well go out and, and in, enjoy a moment together. And, and she's the one, well, he thinks about all these other people that he might potentially call, and he winds up reaching out to Leslie because... Well, although it surprises him, he, he feels a stronger sense of affection to her than maybe he would have thought beforehand. And and sure enough, she's like, okay, you know, being as you say, hot fudge Sundays, you know, that you, you've got me, come on over. And, and so he hops in the car and heads her way. So he gets over to Leslie's place. And of course, the first thing to do is hop into bed together because, you know, he's got to, got to get one in right before the end of the world, right? So they um, eventually they, they crawl out of bed and decide to go do some other things. And the first thing they do is they go to a place called Ships, which is a, a 24 by 7 kind of diner place. And you get some narration by the author. He's talking about, oh, man, all these things going on on the other side of the world. Or uh, basically the other side of the world is gone by now. So he's like the, the wall in Germany is gone, right? Apartheid is gone. The war in Vietnam is over because basically the whole side of the earth is gone and all the things that were going on there are completely and totally now irrelevant. Right. And nobody's really figured that out yet. Um, and as they're, as they're lingering, so she she finishes her hot fudge sundae. He's kind of playing with his. And some dude walks in off of the street and you know, basically start, causes a commotion. He starts, he starts talking loudly, calling attention to himself, and, he, and he's, he's telling people that they need to get outside and look at the moon. And he begins to, begins to turn the conversation toward the world is going to end. And, and this is where, you know, this is where Stan decides, you know what, 
it's time to cut out because he, he wants to avoid thinking about it for as long as possible, or at least he wants to avoid any revelation of that kind of a thing for Leslie for as long as possible. He's hoping that he could just kind of lead her along in this clueless revelry for their final night together. So he's like, come on, leave, you know, let's get out of here. Let's head to the next place. Yeah. And part of it is he's also going through in his mind. He's like, ah, what, what should I do? Since it's my last night on earth, there's no consequences to anything. I can do pretty much anything I want because he's leaving money all over the place for people because they're never going to spend it. Right. He is completely in this mode of, yep, I, I'm going to be able to do anything I feel like doing. As they're moving on down the street, they find themselves at a piano bar called the Red Barn, and most of the people are kind of hanging around the piano. There's there's some dude who's who's playing who seems to be a, a musician and, and knows enough about that. And there's some dude hanging around singing badly. But hey, that's that's like what happens at a bar, right? Yeah, it would certainly happen at a bar that I would be at. They go to order drinks, tries to pay for him. He's like, oh nope. Waiter says or waitress, whichever one it is. Your money's no good here. See that dude over there? Some somebody has has put um put down money, threw down a hundred dollar bill, and you know, that wouldn't last as long now. But uh, everybody's drinking money or drinking his money, and so they, they just get their was it they they get a couple of Irish coffees. And what is it that she orders? It's a pink it's something. It's a pink lady. A pink lady, that's right. And it turns out that it isn't made up to her standards. So she winds up drinking the second Irish coffee. But all of that's just sort of background detail as they are, you know, talking and sort of passing the time and listening to people sing drunkenly and and just sort of enjoying the moment. And eventually Leslie, you know, clues Stan in that she really does know what's going on, you know, and she's she's been going along with this little charade for the entire evening, but she also knows, being the astronomer type, that something's happened to the sun. She she was watching it. and But the funny thing is, the first thing she says is she wasn't able to confirm it. She's looking at Jupiter through her telescope, and he, she's like, well, Jupiter's not bright. The moon is bright. So you're not really sure what's going on. But then they look up in the sky, and sure enough, Jupiter's bright now, which pretty much confirms all of their worst fears. And so then they're thinking, okay, how much time do we really have and what's really going to happen come morning? And they're talking about, you know, what is is likely going to be, will there be a sunrise is, and what is sunrise going to be like? And so they talk about, well, can they go somewhere so that they extend the amount of time that they have and they consider, okay, maybe we should fly to Hawaii. Maybe we could get a flight there. It's a, it's a couple hours further west. And it's ultimately Stan who says, you know what? Hawaii's probably already gone because they were at sunset or whatever. They were they were probably at the beginning of this wave, and so they probably are already as far west as they could possibly be. They've got more time on the planet than anybody else just for being on the um, on the coast of California. Yeah, they're talking about a flaming shock wave, basically that's circling around the Earth and it's going to destroy everything, them included. So they start talking a little bit more about, you, you kind of get the impression they're not really sure why they're bothering to stay alive and conscious. There's a little conversation where they talk about taking pills and maybe just sleeping through the end of the world. But for some reason, they're like, no, nope, we'll just stay awake for the whole thing and let's go get some food and have a picnic on the beach. They, they run down, they, get a, they go to a grocery store and you know the, the weather's getting really weird. 
there's lots of wind, there's heavy rain falling out of the sky. And, and Stan has, has previously said, yeah, there's going to be hurricanes and all this other stuff leading up to the, the final minutes of our existence, right? And everything is kind of unfolding the way that he thinks things are, are supposed to happen. Right. It's the only place that they can find open. It's like 2.30 in the morning or something like that now. And the only place they can find open is this party store, basically. So they go in, they get a couple bottles of champagne, they get uh, some other liquor, and they're just... A bunch of cheese and crackers yeah. and whatnot. <laughs> they're loading up on on party snacks. They got they got an assortment of nuts. Yeah, like you said, they've got a bunch of cheese. They find some foie gras and crackers, and they've got like four or five or six grocery bags of stuff. And, and, and Leslie's like, dude, what is up with all of this? We're never going to be able to eat all of this. And he has started to think at the back of his head, well... What if we don't die right away? What if we linger on? You know, it's going to be really hard to get food. He doesn't reveal all of this to her just yet, but in his head, he's thinking, no, you know what? We're going to have to get our hands on as much stuff as we possibly can. Uh, but it just looks like it's going to be this incredibly indulgent moment, this incredibly indulgent picnic that they decide to have. But yeah, as, as, they're, as they're getting out of the grocery store, it actually starts to hail, and the the guy who runs the store... Like they, they're getting ready to go out and, and the rain just comes down in this incredibly torrential downfall, or downpour rather, and they they hold up. He helps them load all this stuff into the car. They, they make a break for it and then they're trying to figure out, okay, picnic's probably out because the weather's so wonky, so I guess we should pick one of our places. And they wind up heading back to Leslie's. Yeah, but first, of course, they decide to go window shopping for a little bit. There's The story rambles on for a while about, you know, people and what they would do at the end of the world. So one of the things they do is they head up to Beverly Hills and start, you know, either looking through all the windows or thinking about breaking in and stealing all the stuff because, hey, there's no consequences after all. But after, I guess that gets old after a while, you know, what's what's the point of stealing a bunch of stuff if you're just going to die? But as you just said, they, they do go back to Leslie's. Um, they, they bring all their food up. Well, they bring some of their food up. And Stan's like, hey, I'm going to go back and get the rest that we left in the car. And Leslie's a little upset with this. She's like, We're, it's the end of the world. What, what's the deal if you get another bag of food? And he's like, well, you know, we, we, had, we might actually need more food than you think. Uh, we might need food for, oh, maybe a week. We might need a place to hide which goes completely against everything he's been saying in the story so far that, yeah, we're all doomed. You know, they, the earth is coming to an end. There's you know no point in trying to avoid it, but you see this sort of turn in his mind and he's been noticing some other things too, like certain things he thought would be happening, like a really bright Aurora going across the sky. He's not seeing that even though the weather is crazy and there's all this other stuff going on. There's a few things that are missing from his sort of list of what he would expect to see if the world was ending. Right, and so this is where he begins to contemplate the possibility that although the the sun, something is obviously up with it, maybe it didn't go supernova after all. Maybe it's just a really unprecedentedly wicked solar flare. And in that case, it's going to be bad, but it might not be end of the planet bad. It might be just, you know, end of civilization bad. So they hole up in the apartment, and on the off chance that this is actually the case, they basically say, well, you know, we're going to build a big protected pillow fort to try to ride this thing out because we're in a, we're 14 stories above the, above sea level, 
and if the, it's going to be a bunch of floods, but we should be high enough to avoid the floods. There's, you know, hurricane force winds and rain and hail. And at one point in time, they talk about pebbles falling out of the sky, which seemed a little odd. But they're like, well, we're in an earthquake proof building because we're in California after all. And we think that if we're up high enough and the building can stay intact, that we should actually be able to ride this thing out. They build this big pillow fort and hide behind the kitchen counter because they're fully expecting all the the windows to be blasted in by the wind and everything else. So they're just trying to protect themselves as best they can from what they think is going to happen. And they make the transition mentally and emotionally from we're going to die in a couple hours to, well, we better do some things before the power goes out. And so they, you know, they've got food, they, they try to cook all their food and they're doing things like filling, filling sinks and tubs and pitchers and stuff like that with water because they don't know if the water is going to fail. So they start doing these, all these like frenetic last minute prepper activities. And sure enough, the storm hits and it, it 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 blows out some of the windows and and everything's getting wet and everything's you know blowing all over the place but they're still there they're still living through it they're still you know they're they're surviving the storm and pretty much the story almost is at the end at this point in fact it it does end with the the night right this has all been going on starting at like eleven thirty at night. Eventually, the the night fades to gray skies. There's still a hurricane howling outside, but it's not getting any worse. You know, there's no huge flaming shockwave that he's expecting. He's, you know, the atmosphere isn't turning to steam. And all these things that would be happening if there was actually a Nova aren't happening. So it becomes more and more clear that they're probably going to survive. And Stan, in a, a little fit of realization, he's like, oh, crap. We're going to survive. That's a lot harder than dying. He's like, oh, man, if we're going to survive, we're going to need all this other stuff besides food. We're going to need medicine. Or we're going to need trade goods. So it, it comes around to the point where, yep, we're going to live. And holy crap, that's maybe scarier than dying at this point. And he begins to ponder, I wonder how much of the planet has been destroyed. I wonder how many people are left. And he's still sort of musing on things as the story comes to a conclusion with him having the thought, I wonder if our children will colonize Europe or Asia or Africa. Right, because those areas got the full brunt of the solar flare and they're basically wiped clean of life. The radiation and the heat and everything from the solar flare has killed everything on the opposite side of the earth, you know, outside North America, outside you know, this little sliver, not really sure how far east or west, you know, civilization or what's left of civilization will survive. But he's just thinking, oh, man, it's it's going to be a long slog from here. So, yeah, it's a it's a cheery kind of <laughs> welcome to the apocalypse kind of story. In comparison to the story we just did, the pale of, or a pale of air by Fritz Lieber, the science in this particular story is actually pretty good. In fact, I, I don't think there's anything in the story that is not scientifically plausible. I mean, certainly there's, it's very unlikely, right? I mean, there's got to be a certain type of solar flare. It's got to be pointed in the right direction. It's got to be just powerful enough to hit the earth and, but not powerful enough to completely melt it, right? 
Um, but you know, there, there's plenty of solar flares out there. They happen all the time. You can get a couple in a day or, you know, maybe once a week, depending on the, the solar cycle. But, but again, nobody writes stories about a flare that doesn't hit the earth and causes no damage. And nobody writes stories about a flare that completely incinerates and cooks the earth. So yeah, it's, it's a specific set of circumstances, but so be it. Still plausible. Well, and it's interesting in that context within the story, because neither Stan nor Leslie is an expert in this kind of stuff, but they know just enough to know that, okay, stuff's going to get bad, and it's just a question of how bad is it going to get. And yeah, like you said, you know, solar flares happen all the time, and, and they certainly do have some impact, depending on how big the flare is, on, on the things that are going on planet side. But we're not, we have no like history that includes a solar fa- solar flare of the magnitude of what we're talking about here in this story. Although they do actually reference a little bit in the story of maybe this has happened before. They talk about finding melted rocks, you know, that in the moon when we first went there, which I, I never really fact checked that, but it's certainly plausible. And they think maybe sometime in the distant past, uh, the Earth actually did suffer a solar flare. Maybe it hit the Pacific Ocean and, you know, there just wasn't enough people or enough civilization around to, to, to take damage. And they're wondering, well, you know, maybe this is not necessarily a, a rare occurrence. Now, of course, like you said, solar flares happen all the time. And stories like this, they usually... They're actually much more damaging if you're in space, right? Right. You know, they always talk about solar flares and the crews having to protect themselves in space from the radiation. You know, clearly on Earth, we don't have that problem because we have the atmosphere. Um, but you'd think it's kind of strange that there's not a whole lot of other stories out there that deal with the sun going supernova. I mean, of course, we know that it can't, right, as the type of star it is. It's, it certainly doesn't have the mass to do it. And the idea that the sun can't go nova just stopped authors from even trying to write about it. You know, if you have the technology that can make the sun go nova, well, you got a much better story with whatever that cool technology is because it's just not going to happen naturally. Right. And so there have been some notable films and so on, uh, films and stories that that focus on the notion of, of something going wrong with the sun. So we started off with a reference to Finch. And in Finch, it is absolutely a solar flare that's big enough that it has... Um, as, as Finch explains to one of the other characters in that movie, it has turned the atmosphere into Swiss cheese. And so it's uh, the, the, the background radiation and, and the, the heat uh, of the, the, the Earth's surface is just, it's gone completely above human standards or, or you know, human, human, human compatible standards. So it's like 150 degrees all the time and he has to wear a protective suit when he's out and stuff like that. Well, that's just the latest of the films that I've come across that deals with that kind of stuff. There was a film that came out in 2008. Haven't seen it, but I've read the description and I've seen the cast. And it looks like one of those made-for-beer-party kind of movies. It's just called Solar Flare. And it looks, I don't know, a B-movie might be giving it too much credit by the look of it. And, of course, there are things like Sunshine, where the it's the exact opposite problem. The sun is losing power it's it's uh you know as if that's possible as well um the sun is dying and they're gonna you know go throw a whole bunch of explosives into it to reignite the sun 
Yeah, there's just a long history and a long fascination by humans with apocalyptic disasters, right? And we would spend hours and hours if we tried to list them all, whether they're oh, A yeah. movies or B movies or C, D, E movies, right? Oh, yeah. Like, name name a disaster of some sort. We love those movies. Floods, hurricanes, volcanoes, earthquakes, meteors. Oh, but now, of course, we've decided that one disaster isn't enough, so you have to combine them. That's where you get the whole, you know, a hurricane of snakes or Sharknado <laughs> or things like that. It's like, let's let's combine a natural disaster with some other crazy thing going on. The more the merrier, the, the more powerful, the scarier, and, and we just love that kind of stuff. And, and there's just a crazy array of, of, of stories that have been done that, that focus on those kinds of things. So it, it's something of an affectation or something of an affliction, perhaps, for us right now, is that we, we love a good doomsday. Thinking about classic science fiction, right, there's certainly no shortage of suns exploding, but it's usually not ours. I think the only one that I can think of of something happening to our particular solar system was a, a, a story by Arthur C. Clarke called A Rescue Party, where actually aliens arrive to save us because the sun's going to explode, only to find out that everybody's gone. We, we do it, and we all left, and the aliens are like, where'd everybody go? We're here to save you all. And then you have other stories. I think you know another one by Clark was the Star, uh, another fam- another one of his fairly famous and very well written stories. But again, that's about a, a sun in some other solar system going nova. But again, like I said, you know, aside from those, I can't really think of very many classic science fiction stories that deal with the topic of our particular sun going nova. Well, one of the things that's a commonplace in those kinds of stories is how do people respond, and and, and this one is no different. And, and, you know, we see an array of responses in those kinds of stories. You know, the people who just sort of fall apart, the people who get pissed off, the people who go get drunk, you know, the people who decide they're going to, you know, riot and loot and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's, there's a whole range of responses. And in this story, most of the world is clueless. So we're talking about a time before social media so we're talking about a time where information just travels more slowly. And for some reason, I, I, I was trying to figure out, you know, is, um, are, are people just not paying attention? Or if this cycle's been going for at least a little while, for at least a few hours, wouldn't they begin to get some news of what's going on on the other side of the planet? Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. There's no TV broadcast. There's no radio broadcasts, you know, where anybody's reporting on this, at least that the you know Stan and Leslie encounter anywhere, um, but like you said, this is pre-social media, pre-internet, where there's certainly satellite communications. You'd think that someone would suddenly notice all the satellites on one side of the planet getting fried and dropping out of communication. There's no military response. It's just the whole story is Stan and Leslie doing their thing. Right, and he's even watching Johnny Carson at the beginning, and so the TV is on. If there's going to be an emergency broadcast, it seems like there would be an emergency broadcast, but no, he notices a brightness in the sky, and and that's the trigger for the story is his own observation and then him beginning to speculate along the lines of wonder what's going on. And the rest of the story follows from there. Right, and you know of the people that we see out and about, so we made reference to the guy coming into... The, the first place, the the Red Barn, 
Oh, no. Actually, that's not the first place. Ships. Ships. Yes. There you go. The coffee shop. Which, by the way, Ships was a coffee shop that was a chain that ran from 1956 to 1995. That's not a pretty to good jump ride. ahead into our dated or out of place parts of the story, but that's one of them. Yeah. There are no longer any Ships coffee shops, which sounds kind of sad. It'd be like making reference to something like Starbucks, assuming that Starbucks eventually goes out of out of business. But obviously big enough to be notable, but you know, in, and to be homey and commonplace in the context of the story in, in its time of publication, but you know, something that didn't last the test of time itself. But so anyway, where I was going with that is you, you got the guy that walks into ships who is who, who starts saying, "Hey, everything's coming to an end." You know, someone has figured something out, and he begins trying to you know be that messenger. And people are just sort of just beginning to process what he's saying when Stan and Leslie book it out of there. They get to the next place and there's somebody who clearly knows something because he's, you know, buying drinks for everybody. And he's just kind of sitting off to the side, miserable and drinking. And that dude even wanders out of his own party, just like hoofs it to the street and disappears at some point. So we do begin to see other people having some response to the knowledge that things are going to get very bad but most of the people in the story are just plain clueless they don't know yeah they don't get any reference to people walking around with the big placard saying the end is nigh or anything like that and nobody wandering around you know staring into the sky you don't see rioters you don't see looters or anything like that yeah the people that do know just kind of come off as fatalistic almost yeah and like you said, the other people don't seem to have a clue. Of course, it's, you know, 2.30 in the morning. Most people are asleep. And if you're on the wrong side of the earth, you're dead. So perhaps there's just not a lot of, you know, people who are in the know. Not enough to cause a riot, at least. It raises an interesting question, or at least an interesting ponderable, about doomsday scenarios. You know, I mean, Dan, you and I have been around for a little over 50 years here. How many times... Have we had reference made, and there's, you know, stories in the news about doomsday cults and and the kinds of things that are going on, you know, the predictions of the world will end on, and we get a specific date because they are either doing something like they're, they're working with prophecies from some spiritual text or, you know, they, they are working on prophecies from Nostradamus. Was it the, uh, was it the Heaven's Gate people that were drinking the purple Kool-Aid? Yeah, that one. That was one of the more recent ones. I'm trying to remember what year that was. Yeah, that, that's, that's not that one. recent. It's probably a few decades ago. But you're absolutely right. There's all sorts of you know prophets and religions and everything that say, "Up, oh, the end of the world will happen on June 23rd, 2026." And then that comes and goes, and they're like, "Oh, we made an error in our calculations. It's actually going to be four months and three more days." Then that comes and. It's just so funny that people buy into this over and over and over again. But like you said, there must be just something that's that draws people to the idea that the end of the earth is nigh. Yeah, and some people profit from it. Not, no pun intended, profit as in P-R-O-F-I-T. You know, they, they form their little cults and people give them money and maybe they make a compound or maybe they make a, you know, a bulletproof bunker or a bombproof bunker, I suppose. But they really are just in that case being opportunistic and profiting off of other people's, well, gullibility or their willingness to buy in. Yeah, what concerns me more is there seems to be a growing segment of the population that seems like they actually want civilization to fall, right? You've got you've got so many people out there that are kind of 
bought into the whole prepper lifestyle that they're all convinced the world's going to end and they're stocked up on ammunition and gasoline and this and that and the other thing. And it's almost like you get the idea that they're itching to use all this stuff and they're just kind of looking for an excuse. Yeah, you know, there was an earlier episode where we made reference to the Y2K bug and all the people who are prepping for all of our computer-based devices to fail when the clock turned 2000. And there was a whole lot of that stuff going on, you know, people hoarding water and ammunition and, and you know, making hardened bunkers in the woods and stuff like that. But it came and went, and even though there were people who were planning for Armageddon or planning for the, the dissolution of, of civilization, there was not the scary edge to it that there would be now. You know, now you, you hop onto something like Netflix or Hulu or, or any other streaming service, and there's a whole, an incredible array of stuff about people who are prepping, but they seem to have a much more violent and dark edge to them than anybody did back in 2000. Well, fortunately, I guess it's still at least something we can make fun of or other people can make fun of. I think there's actually some song there they're making fun of Doomsday Preppers that I don't remember what that is. Yeah, you know what? It, it's a, it's on the old Nickel Creek album. I think maybe you've even been their last one. Sean Watkins, their guitar player, is the one who wrote it. It's called The 21st of May. And the whole the basic idea behind the song is, is it says, yep. He said the world was going to end, hallelujah, on the 21st of May, and then, oh, it didn't happen. Well, so then there's, oh, well, here it's going to be the next one. And it, it, so it's it's this whole cycle of, of of playing along with this idea that, oh, we got it wrong, but now, now we've got it figured out, and the world is going to end on this day. Oh, nope. Now the end is, world is going to end on this day. So it's just a great lighthearted song that pokes fun at that kind of thing. Yeah, fortunately, the movie industry has also done us some good favors when trying to make light of the end of the world. Well, specifically, that's what movie, right? With Simon Pegg, the end of the world. Oh, uh, one of or my the world's favorites. End. No, that's what it's called. World's End, yeah. And it, it, the, the guys that are out and about on it, they think they're just on their on their annual bender or this like, you know, ceremonial bar crawl kind of thing that they that they used to get together to do and and they get together and and they're they're wandering along, you know, bar to bar to bar, and they are slow in the uptake that something's going on that's bigger than their bar crawl, and it turns out that it's all about the end of the world. Yep, not by solar flare or by supernova, but I'm, I think it was alien invasion or something like that. Yep, and you don't figure that out until the very end when they when they come face to face with the aliens, but. But yeah, it's uh, definitely a a goofy kind of romp, you know, not like the the sort of brooding and and melodramatic spirituality of something like that um oh that that Nick Cage movie knowing oh i couldn't stand that blah <laughs> you'd rather not know that's right or if i did know yeah what what, what would you do if if we had one more day would we record one more podcast dan <laughs> well, given the time it takes to record it, edit it, and put it out, I'm pretty sure we'd all be fried before any of it saw the light of day. Right, and if the apocalypse was brought on by something like an EMP, which is one of the new ap apocalyptic forces, well, that would blow out all electronics anyway, so it'd be a waste of time. Well, once again, we seem to have veered dramatically away <laughs> from the story that we're supposed to be talking about, so... Well, let's rein it in. Getting back to In Constant Moon... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, we made reference already to Ship's Coffee Shop being one of those outdated elements. What are some of the other things? Well, well, Ship's Coffee Shop and Johnny Carson, I suppose. 
Oh, definitely Johnny Carson. He's been off the air since what the '90s? Oh, something like that. I mean, Maybe you know, earlier than that. Yeah, long enough for Jay Leno, his replacement, to also be off the air. Yeah, and he also talks about that one part, you know, all those world references, right? Apartheid and the Vietnam War, and, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia being at peace, and you know, things like that. He's referencing all the all the classic things going on in the early '70s. Uh, even that that second place they go to, Red Barn, I think, is not even in business anymore. Uh, that that piano bar place. And he makes reference to Apollo missions. I can't remember which one it is in the story. Apollo nineteen. Oh, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> which I think there was an actual movie called Apollo nineteen, where we brought an alien species back to Earth, or it attacked them on the moon, or something. I was going to say, like I that. think, yeah, it's a horror movie of some sort. <laughs> it is a like a space horror movie of some kind. So, but yeah, I suppose in nineteen seventy one, it was not unreasonable to think there would actually be an Apollo nineteen going on. Well, and it's interesting that Niven takes the or makes the choice to situate the story in the everyday that is commonplace at the time that the story is going to be published when a lot of authors take care to make a story not have quite so many references and although this is something where you know we call attention to these things on a regular basis you know we rarely call attention to a really long chain of like product specific or location specific things that are like that are chains. So it's interesting that he made this choice to to ground his story in all of these things that were every day in, in 1971. And one thing that we do on this podcast every day is talk about the whole hmm, whoa, and what the fuck scale. So I suppose in the context of this particular story, it's it's an interesting question. It, it varies somewhere between hmm and whoa, I think. Not really a big whoa, but the characters, you know, from the character standpoint, the, the realization that they're not going to die is a big whoa for them, right? right. Well, and, and in the moment, like the, the first moment is, whoa, we're all going to die. And then, whoa, we're not going to die. Yeah, you're right. It's but like a roller coaster. Yeah. And, and a lot of the things that, that happen is, you know, sort of playing out this, well, what would we do if we had one night to live? And, and you know, Niven himself, at least in, in the collection where I have the story, he makes reference to this story being really a love story with a sci-fi background, not so much a sci-fi story that happens to have a love you know, relationship in it, where he's drawn to a particular person when he thinks he's got one more night to live. And that's it. And so, you know, that, that that's he's trying to make us think, well, you know, who would you call if you had just one day left or one night left? I would actually agree with that because I thought almost the same thing when I was reading the story. It, it, it's sort of like, is this really a science fiction story? Right. I mean, there's it's certainly fiction because it didn't happen. But it's like we said, it's certainly plausible. It's all based on science fact. So trying to wonder where where do we draw the line between science fiction and a story that's just written with a science aspect to it? Well, and there's this little teaser at the end of my version of this, or the, the book that I have this story in. It's an author's note. The first one is, I got some help from Jerry Purnell, of course, one of his longtime collaborators, Nivens, that is. Purnell reminded me that I'm an optimist. <laughs> I thought that was funny. And then the very next note is, but Ursula K. Le Guin was most upset by the ending. She wanted the world to end? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, there's just this little teaser. of uh, So what would make 
Ursula Le Guin, you know, upset or disappointed in the ending in some way, shape, or form. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why that would be, but nonetheless, those are the little teasers that Niven drops about it. Well, I at least wasn't terribly disappointed with the ending, but, um, you know, maybe Ursula K. Le Guin wrote a bunch of stories that Larry Niven didn't like the ending of either. <laughs> There's a thought. Well, speaking of teasers, we should probably move ahead and talk a little bit about the next story we're going to cover, which in our ongoing arc of apocalyptic visions is going to be by James Tiptree Jr. Also known as Alice Sheldon. And the title of the story is The Last Flight of Dr. Ain. Make sure you come on back for that one. (laughs) 